Dominic Dunn, people like us. Bill Downey gave me that um, some of the world's greatest literary classics uh, might not have seen publication if they'd had to run the gamut of today's editorial and marketing experts. Here are a few of the rejection letters that the authors of yesteryear might have received if their novels had been mailed to the editors of today. Dear Mr. Dickens, thank you for your recent submissions. I regret to tell you that we are unable to use them. In David Copperfield, all of your characters are stereotypes, particularly your young women, every one of whom adores her father, weighs less than 100 pounds, and cannot understand business. Also, the use of coincidence must, must not be strained. Above all, you are far too wordy. Nicholas Nickleby is three times longer than the books we publish. Cut, cut, cut. Your sentences are far too long and involved. Page 693 is a single sentence that runs 354 words. Try using short paragraphs and choosing simple words. You are assuming too much on the part of your readers. Thank you for thinking of us. By the way, A Tale of Two Cities might work if you retitled it. Heads must roll. Dear Mr. Melville, your manuscript, Moby Dick, is difficult to get into. Try opening with the climactic scene in which the whale is harpooned, and then use flashbacks. Start with something like, when the breaching whale tossed our longboat bow over stern, I wished heartily I'd never signed on board the Pequod. What you really have here is two books, a novel about man's conflict with nature and a documentary on whaling. You will need to decide which you want to go with. Now, if this reminds you of anybody that you've heard today, I wish you'd please uh, keep it to yourself. Uh, dear Miss Austin, your book needs more action. What you have so far in Pride and Prejudice is a group of very nice people working out their problems in rural England. The Napoleonic Wars are underway at the time your novel takes place. You should have some echoes of that perhaps some minor characters going to war and getting killed. The elopement is off stage. Let's see and hear it. Show, don't tell. Um, dear Mr. Dostoevsky, uh, we find the brothers Karamazov obtuse, confusing, and downbeat. What are you really trying to say? Crime and punishment um, has possibilities. But that name will never sell. How about calling it the old pawnbroker murder case? Dear Mr. Cervantes, your work needs variety. You have dialogue followed by a, a mini-adventure, followed by dialogue. The action is corny. Try interweaving drama and dialogue. He might open with, no, no, Don Quixote, cried Sancho Panza, not the windmills. <laughs> mm. Mm. Dear Mr. Hemingway, <laughs> we think that your latest manuscript may work as a movie if we visually heighten the drama in the boat. We'll have close-ups of the old man's hands and, and back as the line plays out, cutting his 
flesh to mush. Lots of blood will play up the cracked lips, the searing sun. When he eats a raw fish, we'll have the audience gagging. How about this? He's got the marlin alongside. He's desperately trying to fend off the sharks with his harpoon. He falls overboard. He thrashes. He screams. The water bubbles red. Good box office. <laughs> Dear Miss, Miss Bronte, Jane Eyre is nicely done, but can you rework the romantic scenes and make them more explicit? <laughs> Enough of that. All right, now... You've read The Two Mrs. Granvilles. You've seen it on um, TV. You've read people like us. Have you read Fatal Charms? It's absolutely wonderful. It's a compilation plus of uh, his uh, wonderful Vanity Fair uh, articles. And uh, you can't read them without laughing in some of them and crying in others, which is the name of the game, isn't it? Dominic Dunn, all the way from New York. I'm not as tall as Barney here. I have to lower this a little bit. <clears throat> uh, this is the second time I've been here, and I'm absolutely delighted to be back in Santa Barbara and back at the Writers' Conference. Um, I thought I would start by telling you that I am a late-life writer. I didn't start until I was 50 years old. And um, I, I used to be in, uh, for many, many years, in television and in the movies. And when I got out of Williams College in 1949, the first job that I had ever in my life was as the stage manager, or what they called the floor manager in those days, of the Howdy Doody show, <laughs> which was a great job. And uh, I went from there into all the live, the great live dramatic shows of the, uh, of the 50s. Uh, I, I was the stage manager for Robert Montgomery and on his weekly anthology show, and each week the show started with me saying from the floor of Studio 8H in uh, NBC in New York, <clears throat> I would say, one minute, Mr. Montgomery, and he was sitting up in a balcony looking down, and he'd say, thank you, Nick, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, from there, I went to work for Fred Coe, that great, great producer, and uh, uh, from there, I went to Hollywood, and uh, I worked on Playhouse 90 and uh, for several years, another great show. And then I went to 20th Century Fox, and I produced my first series, which was a series called uh, Adventures in Paradise, starring Gardner McKay. From there, I went to... Uh, four-star uh, television, which was a television company run by three of the classiest men who ever were in show business, and that is David Niven, Dick Powell, and Charles Boyer. And in those days, four-star was what, oh, uh, what would be today? Aaron Spelling Productions, or, you know, or Lorimar, one of those. I mean, it was a very, very successful company. 
And um, from there, I left that and uh, went to produce uh, movies. And uh, I produced a lot of movies in the 70s, among them uh, The Boys in the Band, uh, uh, The Panic in Needle Park, which was the first picture that um, Al Pacino ever did, uh, Play It As It Lays, which is an, a novel written by my sister-in-law, who is Joan Didion, and the movie starred um, Tuesday Weld and Anthony Perkins, and I did a film with Elizabeth Taylor and Henry Fonda called Ash Wednesday, and so forth. And uh, it was a very exciting time, and it was a very exciting career, but somehow, as the years went on, I had this feeling, this isn't it. You know that thing when you're, you know, it, you're sort of like sideways from kind of where you want to be and where you should be. And I began to get more and more discontented with myself and uh, with my career. And my career went through a major slump, which I always am grateful for. And uh, because it really made me uh, decide that there was something else. And I had this thing, as a producer, my strong point was never, I never was good about dealing with the money in the front office of the studios. I was always terrible at that. But my talent was to work with the writers. And I knew how to read a script and say to the writer, listen, this is what's wrong. You gotta, you gotta mail that letter that you have here. You gotta bring that up to here and establish. I always knew how to do that and how to tell a writer how to, but it never occurred to me that I could write myself. And um, when I was in Hollywood, all those years that I lived there, 24 years, um, I was always very interested in the social life of that uh, community. And um, Hollywood, there is a caste system there that's, that's more pronounced than it is in most um, cities. And um, I, I began to discover about social life, which is a thing that I write about a lot. Uh, I began to, I'm not talking, when I say social life, I'm not talking about having Bill and Jane to dinner on Saturday night. I'm talking about people involved in social life, in society. And I began to realize that there is always an ulterior motive to uh, social life, and it has to do with advancement, usually, either business or social advancement. And uh, it was very pronounced there. And uh, there were a few very big hostesses in those days who would have me and my wife to dinner. And I was, I, I've never been one of the people in the center of the party. I'm always the one on the side looking at it. And uh, Hollywood was a place, the only place I've ever known where people invite people they hate to dinner <laughs> and give them a very good seat. Uh, because there's a reason for it. I mean, there's a deal to be made, and a lot of business was, was done at the parties during, during that period, certainly, uh, that I was there. And um, uh, the, t toward the end of my time there, 
There was a great scandal in Hollywood that I became obsessed with. And some of you may remember that story. It involved the head of a studio who forged a check. And uh, it was a man who was probably making $500,000 a year. I don't know exactly what, but anyway, wh whatever the, the, the peak salary was at that moment in time, he certainly was making. So he didn't need the 10000 bucks that, uh, that he forged this check for. And he used the name of a well-known actor. And the well-known actor uh, fought back. And uh, he decided to pursue this and to find out why. And what happened is that the actor who was the victim became the heavy in the case. And this is sort of a, uh, the beginning of the formation in my own mind of a theme of the kind of stuff that I, was, that I have uh, uh, been writing for the last uh, several years. And there was, um, although I had not started to, to write yet, and there was, uh, th this particular man was married to a woman who wrote a book of just utter silliness, a shopping guide for rich women called New York on $1,000 a day before lunch. <laughs> now, that's the kind of book that, you know, would not drag out the big names to the book party. But this book came out at the height of this scandal that was going on. And I went to that book party, and it was a fascinating moment for me to observe because uh, the biggest names in the business, who normally would not have gone to that kind of a uh, book party for that kind of book, uh, were there. And it was, it was the industry moving in to protect this man. Um, What happened um, was, subsequently, all these writers, journalists, started coming out to California to cover this story. The Washington Post was the first that came, the Wall Street Journal, and so forth. And, you know, I, I used to listen to these guys because I knew so many of them who were out covering the um, uh, story. And it just fascinated me what they were doing. And I kept thinking, I should be doing this. What the, why aren't I doing what they are doing? And, they'd, and, and so anyway, but I'd sort of filed this away. And I decided that I was going to leave there and write my first novel. Now, my kids were of an age that I could afford to do this. I mean, their heavy-duty education was over. So, I mean, I, I didn't have that burden on my back. So I was able to walk away and I did, and I walked away from uh, Hollywood, and I didn't know where to go, though. So I ended up in Oregon, and I stayed in Oregon for six months in a cabin in the woods where I started to write my first novel. And um, 
in which I utilized the two things I have just told you about, which was the social life of the, of the town, and I used a version of this forgery story. And um, uh, it was a very interesting experience. I mean, it's one thing uh, to talk a book. I mean, you can say to you, I'm going to write a book about such and so and the thing, and you get all excited, and your friends say, oh, that's fabulous, oh, that's wonderful. But then when you get there, and you get the typewriter in front of you, and you start, you know, it never sounds the same on the paper in the beginning as when, you know, you're, you're talking about it. And uh, I just wanted to give you, if you're, any of you are having that problem, just to, just to tell you, I think what you have to do is to, to set a certain hours to work each day and keep the same hours each day so that is your writing time and nothing 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 interferes with that that's your time to yourself and I think that if you you have to figure out what you're going to write on I mean are you a longhand writer are you a typewriter writer are you a, c a computer word processor writer. I am the latter. At that time in Oregon, though, I was on a, on a typewriter. And I found that keeping my journal, or starting a journal and keeping a journal and writing letters on the same thing that you're going to write your novel on or your book on or your play or your screenplay, so that you get used to having words come out of you every single day and uh, uh, I found also that to write a letter and talk about the book that I wanted to write helped me get into the book so that I could actually start the writing of the book now after telling you all these wonderful things I learned I wrote that book, it came out, and it was just such a flop, I can't describe it to you. I mean, it was a real bomb. It was called The Winners. And, uh, <laughs> and I got such a terrible review in the New York Times. I mean, it was, it was classically bad. And I have to tell you how I reacted to it, because I've always been very sensitive to um, uh, criticism. And, uh, but I took it, I thought, listen, I'm 53 years old, I got a book published by Simon and Schuster, number one. Number two, I got a book, I'm 53 years old, and I was reviewed in the New York Times. And so, I took it, I was not defeated by it, I took it as this. And I went on from that. Now my editor on that first book was Michael Corda. And I learned more from Michael Corda. He told me, he taught me something 
that is a really good lesson. I, you know, I was filled with self-doubt, filled with things. I didn't know how to do it, and I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, and I would, you know, it was all, all this kind of stuff. And I'd call him up, and I would say, Michael, I don't know what to do. I can't, I can't, I can't do this. I can't, boom. And he, he would say, don't bother me. Don't bother me. Finish your first draft. And uh, I said, but I can't, I can't figure, I can't, but you see, I, with a part, he said, don't tell me about it. Finish your first draft. He'd say, if you can't do it, write, I can't write this scene, but in this scene, such and so happens. And he said, when you've got that together, your first draft, you come and talk to me then, and then we will talk. And let me tell you, gang, it is the best advice I ever had as a writer. And I apply it to everything I use, every article I write, Every book I write, get the first draft finished. Anyway, Michael Corda did not hate that bomb book of mine, and he thought it showed promise. And he said to me, you know, Dominic, you know all these fancy people. And he said, uh, there is nothing that the public likes to read more than about the rich and the powerful in a criminal situation. And let me tell you, I heard those words and a bell went off in my head and I thought, that's it, because that is what fascinates me. It fascinated me, you know, at the time I told you about when the, the, the forgery scandal was going on. It fascinates me. And so, anyway, he suggested then that I uh, write a novel on the Von Bulow case, which was at that moment in time in the first of the two trials. Well, that was not, I mean, that, uh, you know, that was an un unresolved situation at that point, and everybody was alive. It was, it was too difficult. But I remembered another case. By the way, later I was to write extensively about the Von Bulow case, but I will, I will come to that in, in time. Um, when I first got out of Williams College and I was a stage manager for Robert Montgomery, I met a young girl whom I had a romance with. And she, her, I won't tell you her last name, her first name was Ruthie. And Ruthie used to tell me stories about, she was from one of those girls whose mother was married five times and whose father was married six times, you know, one of those families. And she would tell me a story about a family that her father's present wife was a member of a very prominent Long Island family. And in this family, her stepmother's brother had married a showgirl. Uh, and the family all hated this showgirl. And um, uh, they thought she was a gold digger. And they thought she was all kinds of nasty things, you know. And I used to love hearing all these stories about this woman. And so one night, Ruthie and I were in the Stork Club. This was in the, in the early 50s. And she said, there she is. And this was the showgirl married to the guy. Well, I looked over and she was just a knockout, this lady. And so they got up to dance, she and the, uh, the guy she was with. And uh, when she stood up, I have to tell you this, she was in a strapless evening dress. 
Now, I don't think they still do this anymore, but in the 50s, when ladies wore strapless evening dresses, they had one of the great gestures of all time, and that was they did this, and they did this. And she pulled that up there, and I mean, I was just dazzled by this woman. And she walked out on the, on the dance floor with this guy, and when she walked, it was like, out of my way, everybody. You know, don't get in my way. And she started to dance with this guy, and she had her lips right at his ear, and she sang to him the whole time. And I thought, this is it. This is how I want to live. I, I want to be with people like this always. Now, a year later, she shot and killed that man. <laughs> and I became obsessed with that story. I mean, through the years, there have been several stories that have obsessed me. And uh, the forgery story obsessed me. And this story obsessed me also. And the thing that was so extraordinary on that story that the the mother of the slain man who had despised her daughter-in-law stood by her, defended her, and it was class. It was all to do with class. And so anyway, I told this story to Michael Corda, and he said, there's your next book. There's your next book. I wrote it out as a... Um, uh, what do you call it when you write out a, a treatment or a, you know, a proposal, I mean, I couldn't think of the word. And I showed it to, and he turned it down. To my astonishment, he turned it down. And I went elsewhere with it. I went to Crown Publisher, who has been my publisher ever since. And I went with a, 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 another great editor called Betty Prashker. And uh, uh, every time, by the way, I just want to add this, that I, in the years following, every time I saw Michael Corda, because the book turned out to be quite a successful book, and every time I saw Michael Corda, he would go, oh, like this. <laughs> I mean, it's a mistake everybody has, you know, has made at one time or another. But anyway, I researched that book as if I were going to write it as nonfiction. And I went out to Kansas where that showgirl was born. I found people there who knew her then. I found people who knew her in high school. I went to Kansas City where she'd been a model at Swanson's department store. I found people who would, but she was a showgirl at the Copa. I found people who were in the line with her at the Copa. I found people who knew her during her grand days after she married and she became a quite well-known socialite in New York. I knew people, I, met, I mean, I met and, and found people who then uh, knew her after she shot the, and killed this man. And, you know, she was never brought to trial. And I've, I, the disaster of her, of her life, I mean, the point being that you never get away with anything. You might beat the law, but somehow life takes care of you and so forth. And after I did all this research and everything, and I knew the facts, 
then I wrote it as fiction. Because one of the most interesting things to me was the, a meeting that I'd read about in the newspapers of that period when the mother of the slain man went to the hospital where this woman was taken after she killed her husband. She was put in the hospital for 20 days and because of the privilege of, her, of the family she'd married into, she was not questioned by the police for 20 days. And the mother went to visit her. Now if I had written this as nonfiction, I couldn't have gone on after the mother walked in the door and the, and the hospital door closed. And that wasn't enough for me. I had to know what did these two women say to each other. And that's where the novel comes in. You see, that's where taking, uh, taking every, almost everything I write, all my fiction that I write is actually based on something that I know about. And then I move away from it to give some distance to it and but I really kind of feel like I know the people and I know the facts and I know the things and then and then I can move on and make up the dialogue that I want that I know fits these people's um, lives and my first draft when I turned it in my editor Betty Prasker said this she's too tough she's too tough nobody's going to uh, uh, want. Uh, I mean, nobody's going to like her. She's still the heroine of your book. And so, uh, and I said, yeah, but I can't make a, you know, she killed her husband. I can't make her a swell girl. And then I happened to be doing a story at this time with Horst, the great f photographer. And we were, uh, uh, I was writing a story about somebody, he was photographing the same person, and we were just talking, and he told me he was from Oyster Bay, Long Island. I'd never met Horst before. And I said, oh, isn't that funny? I'm writing a novel about a woman from Oyster Bay, Long Island, uh, about a, a, a shooting there. And he said, well, you must be writing about Mrs. So-and-so. And I said, yes. And he said, you know, she came to me, a week before she committed suicide. And he said, she was the loneliest woman I ever knew. And that's just what I needed to hear. And I went back and I put that element of it. It's the thing of getting away with, but not getting away with, that I think is a very interesting uh, uh, thing. Now about this time in my life I went to have dinner with a journalist friend of mine called Marie Brenner and uh, she's a real tough writer and a very very good writer and uh, it was Sunday night and it was uh, chili and beans in her kitchen and there were about eight nine people writers all and I was seated next to a young English woman who was, had been, just left being the editor of Tatler magazine in England. She was called Tina Brown. I'd never heard of her. And we had a wonderful time, and it was a wonderful sort of stimulating evening, and I was telling Hollywood stories and so forth and so on. And the next day, I got a call from our hostess, Marie Brenner, and she said, you know, Tina Brown would like to have lunch with you. I said, okay. And so we went out to lunch. And she said to me, you know, 
you shouldn't be wasting all those Hollywood stories that you were telling last night at dinner. She said, you should start writing for magazines. I said, hell, I've just started writing books. I mean, I can't, uh, you know, and I, she said, yeah, you can do both. And she said, I said, but I don't, th I don't think I would know how. And she said, but I could help you. I would teach you. Now, I did not know at that point, and nor did she actually, that six months later, she was to become the editor of Vanity Fair magazine. And we started that day a relationship that is one of the most important relationships in my life. This young woman, she's only now, I think, 35 years old, and is one of the most brilliant women I've ever, I have ever known, has incredible story sense and so forth. And while I have been there at Vanity Fair magazine, uh, I'm a contributing editor, I have written about Klaus von Bülow. Ivan, I wrote about Ivan Boski before the Ivan Boski scandal. I wrote about Ivan Boski as you will see, I mean, I'm interested in people like this, you know, and uh, I'm interested in, in, in falls, in falls from, from the, the high and mighty who take these great public falls that they bring on themselves. Ivan Boski's wife was one of the two owners of the Beverly Hills Hotel. And uh, he, some, uh, uh, his wife owned 48% of the hotel, her sister owned 48% of the hotel. There were four points that an old aunt out in, that nobody ever thought of, out in uh, Detroit owned. Ivan Boski went behind everybody's back and bought those four points. So those four points plus his wife's four points gave him 52% of the hotel. So he had the controlling interest. His sister-in-law and her husband had been running the hotel. He had a great meeting in the, in, the, in the crystal room of the hotel with every employee from the manager to the busboy and fired his sister-in-law in, in, in front of everybody. And this was before, you know, the real stuff came out on him. But, you know, you saw then what a swell guy he was. <laughs> and, uh, and um, uh, there was also... I was the first journalist to interview Imelda Marcos after her fall, and uh, that was an incredible experience. I mean, there, we talk about falls. I mean, that was a fall, and uh, 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 and um, I'm going to tell you a story about Imelda in a, a, a moment. I also covered the trial of the uh, the man who killed. Vicki Morgan, who was the mistress of a very, very powerful man, and so forth. With that, again, was another extraordinary case. And more recently, I have uh, in, I've gone to, to prison in Lucca, Italy, to interview Roberto Polo, a guy, brilliant young uh, financier in New York, who um, uh, what do we call it, absconded, lifted, robbed, stole, purloined $120 million of his client's money and uh, took off and uh, bought the most beautiful French art, 18th century, most beautiful 18th century French furniture. And uh, he and his wife set up a 
extraordinary life in Paris. I mean, I never, I always wonder about these people. Don't they think somebody's going to catch on, you know? That's a, that's a lot of bucks to walk off with. And uh, when, when the French police uh, started moving in on him, I mean, he did one of the most stylish and bravura things I've ever heard of. Uh, he gave a, 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 a fragonard, one of his fragonards, to the Louvre, and he gave, the, which he had bought for his wife, the crown of the, uh, who was the last empress of France? Uh, Josephine. And he gave, he took the crown back from his wife, gave that to the Louvre, the French government gave him the little red ribbon that goes in here, and a week later the warrant went out for his arrest. And, I mean, I am fascinated by these people. And uh, um, what happened, I mean, most recently, I mean, I've been with Baron Thiessen in uh, Lugano, and uh, he's the, the, this incredibly rich man with this uh, art collection that next to the Queen of England is the greatest private art collection in the, in the world, which he has uh, given, kind of given, really kind of sold, uh, to the Prado and for a 10-year uh, period. And wh when I was with him, his, uh, I, I happen to know that his previous wife, the fourth, the, the, his, he's presently married to the fifth Baroness Thiessen, but the fourth Baroness Thiessen had a lover who went out a window in New York, pushed or jumped, it has always been a moot point. And, um, and in the, I was planning on sort of on my last day with them to bring this up. I mean, I've learned how you do that, that you get your story first and then you get into the tough stuff later at the very end. So you still have a story when they kick you out, you see, if they kick you out. But to my astonishment, she brought it up. And she said, you must have heard about this. Well, you know who did it. I mean, he was pushed. He didn't jump. He was pushed. And you know who pushed him, don't you? And she told me all this. Well, of course, I used it all in my, in my, in my story. And, but uh, one of the things that, that, you have, that I have learned is that when I interview all these people, that I leave my own baggage about them at the front door so that the experience of being with somebody can just happen. I mean, I, you know, when I, I mean, it, it, it was hard for me to get in to see Imelda Marcos, let me tell you that, because she, there was just after it happened and they were under strict laws that they could not uh, be interviewed by anybody and it's too long and thing to tell me, tell you how I finally got in, except that he had a toothache, Ferdinand, and went to the, um, had to go to the dentist and she knew I'd been trying to see her so long, and uh, she agreed to see me for 10 minutes while he was at the dentist, and she said, no camera, I said, fine. No tape, fine. No questions, fine. She said, you can shake my hand. I said, okay, okay, that's all I settled. And so uh, I went to this sort of rotten little house they were in at that time in, in, uh, in Honolulu, and I got in there, and I, I don't know why, I just knew if I got in that door, that's all, I mean, I knew it would work. And uh, the 10 minutes came and went, and four hours later, I was still uh, with her. And, um, uh, 
and you know, if I mean, if I had started out by saying, you know, how many billions did you sneak out with? You know, I mean, nothing would have happened. I mean, the point is, whatever, I didn't care about the shoes. I knew about the shoes. I wasn't going to ask her about the shoes. The, you just got to wait and see what happens and build something and, and, it, and it, so forth. And she told me stuff that I knew she was lying, but she had been in that palace for so many years that she was used to talking like that and used to having you believe her right back. Do you know what I mean? It was this, this sort of power, and she still hadn't gotten it into her head at this point that it was all over for her. I mean, she really thought that they were going to go back. And finally, things, it started to go down a little bit, and I hadn't quite gotten everything. And she had this lovely ring on her finger. And one of the things I've learned interviewing is that women who love jewelry and have a lot of it love to talk about it. And I said, uh, gosh, that is really a beautiful ring you have. And she said, oh, and she said, well, you know, Ferdinand gave me this 35 years ago when we became engaged. And she said, your government says that my husband didn't have any money and he looted the people. He, she said, Harry Winston has valued this ring at $300,000, and he gave me this 11 years before he came into power. So she was, she was going, you see, and so forth. And then the next thing I knew, she went out for a minute. She came back. Oh, no, I left out an important part here. She said, this is all I have left. Everything we left behind or your government took when we came into this country. She vanished. She came back into the room. She had another great big ring. <laughs> now, I did not say to her, I thought you said... <laughs> you, you just let that go by, you know? And she told me about ring two. And this was the star of the East, or some name like that, a registered major work, which I checked on later, and it was the real McCoy. And uh, uh, the next thing I knew, a little maid went through the room, and the, she's talking in Filipino to the maid, and the maid comes back in and in five minutes, and she's carrying these lucite boxes like this. And these lucite boxes are just filled with jewels. And she's opening them up, and she's showing that stuff is all over the place. And, and I mean, finally, I mean, I, she gets my look. That we, and she says to me, oh, well, you see, these are all imitation. And she said, we had, uh, I left this, this was nothing. We left this back in the palace. And every time she said Corazon Aquino, she said Corazon Aquino. She hated her so much. And uh, she said... Uh, she said, every, she said, when, uh, thank you, thank you. And she said, uh, when, um, uh, when uh, I left this behind and when Corazon Aquino realized it was fake, uh, she, that she put it out on the black market and a friend of mine saw it on the black market and sent it to me here in Hawaii. And I thought, does she think I believe this, you know? <laughs> and anyway, but I was going like this. And just at this moment, the doors open and... Ferdinand comes back from the dentist, and he is furious with her. I mean, and I'm there with a pad and a pencil, and I am, I am writing all this, all this stuff down. 
And he comes into them, there's the three of us, and then he says, I'm listening, Imelda. And she had this big scarf on, this big, like a, a something, I don't know, big thing that was tied, and she pulls it off, and she panicked. She absolutely panicked. And she said, my husband didn't want me to show my jewels. And she throws the, the, the thing over the jewels, and he storms in, and she was afraid of him. She was afraid of him for that moment. And she's over there talking to him. And I hated her, but I liked her too. And I stood in front of the jewels like this <laughs> to, keep him, <laughs> to keep him from seeing it. And so anyway, and anyway, this incredible thing happened with them. I mean, he really was, they were just like this with each other. And he, she, she says to him, Oh, uh, uh, darling, Mr. Dominic Dunn is a, he has written a book that is a, a best-selling book and they're making a movie with Claudette Colbert in Hollywood. And he goes, oh, in Hollywood. And she, she, and she got his mind off the, 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 the big bag of jewels there. And, and uh, uh, anyway, so, uh, <laughs> anyway, that kicked me out after that. But anyway. But I had enough to make a story, I'll tell you that. And um, anyway, um, after uh, the two Mrs. Grenvilles and after a lot of these things uh, that I had uh, written, I mean, the sort of doors of New York, uh, Nouvelle Society opened to me. And uh, I was, of course, very, very interested in observing this and 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 uh, uh, you know I don't know why I thought it was going to be all kind of wonderful conversation and you know just great things and so forth and so on and I found that as I went around in these in these circles of the you know since Malcolm Forbes brought out his list each year of the 400 richest people in America you know there's none of the people that we think of as the you know, Vanderbilt's Astors, forget them, gang, they're gone. I mean, these are all people that you never heard of before for the most part, and, and the money of the very, very rich now is, is, uh, uh, has, is these great enormous, enormous fortunes are wealth that has been made in the last 15 years for the, for the, for the most part. And what I found was that the conversation was almost exclusively about money. About, oh, you know, a book called The Way We Live Now. And The Way We Live Now is a book about London society in the 1850s. And it deals with the nouveau riche and the old rich. And there is one of the great characters in it called Augustus Melmott. And uh, I thought, as I read this book, this is exactly what is going on in New York. This is what I am watching, and this is what I'm going to write about. And out of that came the book, People Like Us. And I, in fact, the Elias Renthal from that book I really based on Augustus Melmont. Um, and Lil Altimus, the society woman in that book, I based on Lady Carberry from uh, The Way We Live Now 
and she had a son and a daughter, a dissolute son and an unmarried daughter. Now, I then dressed them up into uh, sort of composite characters of some of the people that I had, uh, I had seen uh, in, in, in New York during this time. Now, you know, I have, I mean, people say to me, oh, what do you do at parties? Do you go in the bathroom and write down everything <laughs> that you hear? Well, I don't. Maybe in the taxi on the way home, but I, but I don't do it right, right there. What I have learned to do is this. Is, is you get the sort of the essence of something. I recently interviewed um, and had an article about Phyllis McGuire in a Vanity Fair magazine. For those of you who don't know, she was one of the McGuire sisters of a very famous trio made uh, in the 1950s. And for years, she was the, the mistress of Sam Giancana. And she now lives in, in utter splendor in Las Vegas and she's an incredibly rich woman and so forth and she's also an absolutely fascinating woman and so I went out to Las Vegas and stayed with her and, and uh, so forth and I, I, I was because this, uh, this was not fiction this was not this is my non-fiction life but she would say things like she was talking about uh, her great dislike of Frank Sinatra and she told me the story that when his mother was killed she said uh, I sent the Lear for Dr. DeBecky. Now, when you say, I sent the Lear for... That's not a line that many people can say. I mean, that's a special line. And I'm always interested in special lines. I, I, I like each character that I write about to, to be, have the thing that makes him unique. And I said to her, uh, now what about if I write all this stuff you're telling me about Frank Sinatra? Uh, is, is he going to give you any flack? And she said, he knows better. Now that's a tough line. And, and um, anyway, but you see, if I had been, if I had heard that, if she told me that at a party, I would have remembered those two lines. And, and then I didn't have to remember anything else. I could then construct it from there. I mean, those were the things that were absolutely her alone, that only she could say. I like that kind of that kind of um, uh, dialogue. But you know, everybody who writes about sort of social writing, I mean, you starting, starting back with Henry James and Edith Wharton and, and so forth. I mean, Henry James had to have known Daisy Miller, or a Daisy Miller, and Edith Wharton knew a Lily Bart, and Scott Fitzgerald knew a Dick Diver, and John O'Hara knew a Julian English, and uh, Marquand knew a, a Pullum. I mean, they all knew their own versions, and then they, they, they do it. Now, what happened to me on People Like Us was that I still don't know how, but Women's Wear Daily, which is, um, you know, a fashion newspaper that somehow controls, really controls the lives of... Um, a whole segment of American society, especially in New York, they stole a first draft of my book uh, seven, six or seven months before the book came out. And they took descriptions of my characters and then they added their own adjectives to it. And they put 
photographs of people in New York society. And they said, like Truman Capote, Dominic Dunn has bitten the hand that fed him. And uh, it was, let me tell you, it was a bad moment for me in New York. I was not in great demand. And, uh, but I knew, I knew that there was nothing mean in uh, people like us. I mean, what that book was, I wanted to show what the social life in New York was during this period when the rich went so public. A lot of people in that world absolutely panicked, thinking, what has he said about me? And what happened was, I began to get calls from people, absolute terror in their voices, or else my publisher got calls from lawyers and demanding change. And I kept thinking, what do they think I know about them that I don't really know? And that they had this kind of fear. And um, anyway, uh, so the book finally uh, came out. And I think all the people that were so panicked were much less panicked once the, once the uh, book uh, came out. I'm very proud of uh, people like us because I think it does really tell what it was uh, like during this, uh, during this time. I'm now working on a new novel. Uh, it, uh, it's called An Inconvenient Woman. And uh, I, I'm very interested in uh, people who have the kind of power that can call a newspaper and say, don't print this story. Or it can call the police and say, uh, back off. And because it, it happens. And um, uh, there, there was, I see a lot of people here from Los Angeles, and I sort of, sort of uh, slightly, uh, anyway, I'll still go on and tell this. <laughs> there was, a, a, about a year ago, more than a year ago, a year and a half ago, a prominent man in Los Angeles, widely known, greatly loved. Uh, who moved in very high circles. And uh, he um, was shot to death. And quite a lot of uh, gunshots were fired. Uh, it was a story that never made the newspapers. A prominent figure. And a story was put out in a very short time after his death that it was a suicide. Now there were several shots in his body as well as a shot in the mirror over the fireplace as well as a shot in the coffee table as well as a few other shots. I mean, you know, we all know if we do want to do it, we know that it goes here or here. And, uh, you know, and you don't do a couple of them in here, you know. And uh, so, uh, the, 
that is not what my book is about, but I mean, it, it interests me. It's an element that comes early on and is sort of dismissed only because I want to establish the fact that I was, I'm dealing with the kind of people that can make that sort of telephone call to the paper or to the uh, police. And um, that book was halfway finished. I hope to have it finished by the Labor Day, end of Labor Day weekend. And uh, if it uh, uh, goes and is successful, I hope that Barnaby Conrad will invite me again to the Santa Barbara Writers Conference. And I thank you very much. You are invited. You are invited, Nick Dunn. That's a wonderful title, isn't it? Inconvenient Woman. Wonderful title. Uh, the story that Nick told about Melda is in here uh, in the book, plus wonderful other stories. And uh, I urge it on it. Okay. Sure. Uh, yes, and I'll repeat the questions. So, yes. How does he keep getting interviews with these people after he writes what he writes? Good question. I never understand it, if you want to know the truth. <laughs> I notice that you very carefully don't mention names. Is that uh, like uh, uh, the name that begins with a W and ends with a D that, uh, that you uh, wrote about in the two Mrs. Granville's? Well, uh, I made an agreement with the fa with the the sur the one surviving member of that family that when I discussed the book or wrote about the book, I would not mention the family name, and so I never do. But everybody knows, but I just don't mention it. Oh. How does he find out where these people are? Uh, does he have a source book or an address uh, book to get these people? Yeah, well, that's the easiest part because, I mean, the, the magazine, uh, Vanity Fair, uh, you know, it's amazing. People want to be interviewed. It is, it is absolutely fascinating to me. And, you know, half of what they tell me, I don't ask them. It just keeps coming. I mean, it is just absolutely fascinating. And it never ceases to fascinate me. I don't know. I only do it for them. Mrs. Kramer. Hi. Why did he turn down? Why did Michael Corda, uh, after encouraging him, what was it he saw in it that made him turn it down? Well, I, you know, I mean, I don't mean that as an anti-Michael Corda thing, because I think he's absolutely a brilliant man. What happened was he said, after the shooting, there's no story. And, of course, there was a story after the shooting. You know, I mean, the, the shooting came midway in the book. And, uh, I mean, he just didn't, he just hadn't visualized it like that. Yeah, well, we all make mistakes, you know.
What is the trend going into the 90s if the 80s uh, showed a trend for our instant art collections, etc.? What is the trend now? Well, I mean, well, I think, uh, I, I think wh what it's going to be is, uh, you know, I think that the, that the White House leads in this. And, and, and I think that, 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 uh, the, that Mrs. Reagan set a lot of the pace of the of the 80s and i think that mrs bush has a different take on it it's a quieter uh, take and i think that's what's going to happen to the I, I think the rich i've already gone indoors a bit there there's not so much showing off they're they're still as rich though now back in demand now that uh, they're no longer uh, nervous uh, those people that were thought they were going to be in uh, people like us and there's a few doors permanently closed I think. <laughs> <laughs> not a thing I worry about yes. they were all dead they were, they were all dead by the time that I that I started to uh, to write this. Mrs. W and uh, the older Mrs. Grenville was dead by the time he came to write it. Yes. Is the book that he's now doing, An Inconvenient Woman, is it? Uh, is it uh, based on the shooting in Los Angeles? No, it is not based on it. That comes into it. It is a novel. It is not uh, a piece for Vanity Fair. It is a novel in which it is treated novelistically. Is there such a word, novelistically? There is. There sure is. Um, you won't have... Do we know the name of that man that was shot? We do. Yeah. All right, Nancy... I'll see you later. Um, <laughs> anybody got another question? Is whose life in danger? No, I don't think so. Uh, I, you know, I'll tell you what, that does come up from time to time. Is I mean, danger, uh, excuse me. Is his life in danger uh, because uh, of this uh, new book? No, I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't think in that particular case. You know, after I wrote it, I wanted to talk about Klaus von Bülow, and I didn't really get into that because there wasn't enough time. But, you know, I mean, there, there were moments after I wrote that, that that I felt that I could be in some sort of danger. That does happen at times. Did he do it? <laughs> For the record, did he do it? No, uh, he didn't, but we told him not to do it again. <laughs> I didn't agree with the verdict. That's the, the uh, I didn't agree with the acquittal verdict. I'll put it that way. <laughs> yes, Lou. Why didn't you mention the name Bagelman and uh, Cliff Robertson? Why what? Do you know now why it didn't work? Well, I'll tell you what, I think 
you know, there's two studios now that I've had these other successful books that want to make the winners as a mini-series now. It's really, it's really amazing. I think that there is a, it's people, books about Hollywood, people don't take seriously, and especially critics don't take seriously. It happens over and over again. If a book is about Hollywood, the, it's easy to make fun of, and it's easy to mock. And the New York Times especially is a big mocker of any kind of Hollywood novel. Including The Last Tycoon, probably. Probably. Yes, ma'am. The Man and the Winner? Did you read it, the book? No. Yeah, but uh, he was only one of many characters. I mean, all my books have a lot of characters in it. So, I mean, the whole book, that was not, it was not a forgery story. That was simply one element of it. I'll ask you a question. Anthony Trollope, your favorite writer, kept, uh, <coughs> kept voluminous notebooks, which are wonderful to read. Do you keep voluminous notebooks? I keep notebooks, yeah, yeah. And wonderful to read, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Donald Trump fascinating. Well, I think Donald Trump is a, is a, is an extraordinary character of our time. I mean, you talk about public rich and uh, and I mean, you know the thing is though about the Trumps, they're two hard workers. She's a hard worker too. And, and, you know, they're both there at their offices at 8 o'clock in the morning. I mean, it's not like just uh, clipping their coupons, you know. Speaking of, of Rich, uh, there are a lot of people out there waiting for you to sign books. All right. And we've got to let him go out there and, and continue working.